0: So today we'll examine the first five verses of this prologue to John's Gospel. And my desire will be to explain five big ideas from these first five verses. And then I want to try to give two, if we have time, implications that flow out of those ideas. Five big ideas, two implications. But first, just one comment about the purpose of John's Gospel. Remember last spring when we studied 1 John. And so as we get into our Advent series, we're talking about the same author here in the book of John. It's the apostle whom Jesus loved. It's the brother to James. It's the youngest of the apostles, the eventual eventual elder to the church at Ephesus. It's John. And in 1 John 5.13, he gave us the purpose of that great letter. Do you remember it? Do you remember the purpose? Of course you don't. Even I had to look it up. 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's a very clear stated purpose for the letter. And here in this book, in the gospel that bears his name, John does a very similar thing. John chapter 20, verse 31, he states his purpose for writing. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the common thread between these two New Testament books by the same author is believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that you might have life in his name. John is very committed to the message of belief. But not just belief in general. It seems that that's always sort of a buzzword around Christmas, believe. I think it was Macy's that built their entire Christmas ad campaign a few years ago around the word believe. Pro- problem was Macy's never told us what to believe they just said believe it sort of generic and for John belief is never generic his commitment is to see sinners believe that Jesus Christ is God's son and for them to understand that everything Jesus is and everything Jesus did brings life to those who trust in him First John, if you remember back, is committed to giving us the evidences of those who believe, telling us what those believers look like. But his gospel that we just read from is committed to proving and explaining the object of that belief, who to believe in, the divine Christ. So this is John's agenda from the very start. Let's go back to the text, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Five ideas. First one, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. John starts his gospel with, in the beginning, which is exactly the way Genesis 1 1 reads. And it's very similar to the way 1 John 1 1 reads. So, John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word. Meaning, at the beginning, the Word existed. The beginning was not the Word's beginning. Rather, it's the word which was there in the beginning. You see that? I need to point out that throughout this passage, the to be verb was is frequently used in what's called the imperfect tense. Now, I point that out because the imperfect tense always explains continuous action, which doesn't mean an action was performed and completed or that an action will be performed later. Rather, the imperfect tells us There was an action, and that action continues on without end. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word had always been the Word, and the Word would continue being the Word on into the future. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce wrote, he wrote these words, No matter how far back we may try to push our imaginations, we can never reach a point at which we could say of the divine Word, that there was once when he was not. So what Bruce is trying to say about the word is that it's eternal. It's always been there. It was there at the beginning of creation because it existed before time and creation. And if it existed before time, then it has always existed. So then what is the word exactly? And if you were paying attention when I read verse 14 a moment ago, or if you just know this passage, You recall that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us so we can easily say that the word is the son of god the word is jesus christ but why use the term word why not just say in the beginning was the son or in the beginning was this fellow named jesus why in the beginning was the word why is john playing word games get it word games here two reasons for the use of of the word word both reasons tied to those who would read the gospel and i kind of need to travel down this short side road just for a minute and we'll come back to the outline but but understanding the use of word is foundational for these 18 verses there's two reasons for using the term it's because john had two basic audiences who would receive and read the gospel first audience was the jews and with the Jews, the word was a well-understood concept. To a Jew, the word was connected to deed or action. We see the word idea played out in places like Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. It is God's spoken word in Genesis 1 that creates all things from no thing. Remember, he said, let there be light. He said, let us make man in our image. He said that it was good. God using speech, using word to create, to express, to act. Further, it's by his word that that God introduced the covenant to Abraham. By his word that he called Moses from a burning bush. By his word that he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. That he revealed scripture to the prophets. And on and on and on I could go about the word. The book of Hebrews, which some of the ladies in the church have been studying, right from the start, it vividly spells out the prominence of the word in the Old Testament. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken. He has expressed himself God delivers his word. If you were to ask me about my neighbors, the people that live around me, some of them I know, some of them I don't know, and for those I don't know, I can see where they live, maybe what kind of car they drive, sort of the routine that they keep, and from that I can infer some things about my neighbor's. But if you were to ask me if I know a certain neighbor, do you know him or do you know her, if you were to ask me that concerning a neighbor that I'd never spoken with, I'd have to say, no, I don't know them. Why? Because one's word is the clearest and ultimate expression of who they are. You can't really say you know someone until you speak to them, until they speak to you. Justin Jackson is here. He's, uh, member of the Ham family, married in, uh, married up too, I might add. But Justin, (laughs) Justin and I had this sort of mutual admiration society happening for a lot of years. I came to Enid, or excuse me, I left Enid right before Justin came to town. And Justin came to town, and he and I, we, we kind of knew a lot of the same people. I had sort of a background at FCA and a background at Emmanuel, and that's where he was, and that's the stuff he was involved in. And so we knew all these same people, and we knew of each other, and we spoke really highly of one another. I did of Justin, and I think he did of me. I think he did of me. And then I was going to move here, and then he was leaving here, right? And so that whole thing happened. And And I don't know when exactly Justin and I began to speak to one another, but for a long time, I would be like, yeah, I know who Justin Jackson is. But then finally, we spoke, we got to talk, and I could say, I know Justin, because we've exchanged words. Sorry, Justin, for calling you out. But this is how the the Jews would view God. The word of God was the clearest and ultimate expression of who God was. And since God had spoken to them, directly to their forefathers and to their prophets, they knew God. yet that word would find its most complete expression in the sun. And what did the Jewish people do with the word? They largely rejected him. You can know lots of things about God by looking at his creation, by inferring things about the world, even by observing God's people, but you cannot know God apart from his word, apart from Jesus Christ. Christ is the clearest expression of God that we have, thus the word. To the Jewish audience, John's point would have been very, very clear. The second audience reading this letter would have been the Greeks. And to the Greeks, the word was the highest philosophical concept they had. The word, the logos in the Greek, was the utmost principle of reason and order in the universe. The Greeks were a philosophical people, so the word was this abstract principle that gave meaning to all reality. And though the average Greek may not have understood all that the logos meant, even the common man, even the common Greek, would have known the weight of that idea. To the Greeks then, by speaking of the word here in John 1-1, John was presenting Jesus as the personification and the embodiment of the logos, of the thing that they held in the highest regard. But Jesus, however, was not some impersonal force or abstract principle. In Jesus, the logos, the word, it was made man. The abstract had become concrete, or at least it had become flesh. Point is, it became real. And so John is wanting both groups to connect with the word. And in doing so, he's saying, the word is eternal. Eternal. And when you speak that way about someone who came in the flesh, that is a mind-blowing idea. Second idea we see in these first five verses is that the word, Jesus, is distinct from but equal to God the Father. John tells us in verse 2 that the word was with God. And it's here where we start wading into the land of the Trinity, And any time you do that, you get into an area that is absolutely essential to Christian doctrine, but also an area that can be thoroughly confusing if you really try hard to, to, to get it to all add up. The ancient theologian Augustine once said, try to understand the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Deny the Trinity and you'll lose your soul. And he was right. But the Trinity, we need to understand, is not a bad math problem where we try to get three to equal one. We don't need to think about it that way. It's a beautiful, essential doctrine that makes Christianity utterly unique. And just so, because of the confusion that that, that often shrouds the Trinity, let me give you three things to remember when thinking about the Trinity. And These three things could save you from being a heretic, so you might wanna write them down. Uh, First thing, just as an aside, so I guess I'm gonna give you, don't ever try to illustrate the Trinity. You know, don't try to say that it's like three-in-one shampoo, or it's like an egg, or it's like water, or it's like anything. Don't go there. Just stay away from illustrations. Remember, these three things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoy unity, equality, and diversity. Unity, equality, and diversity. Seems like a political campaign almost, doesn't it? Unity. We believe in one God. We are monotheists there are not three gods, there is one God and that God consists of three persons and those persons are utterly unified, they are one. They're not independent deities they enjoy a unity like nothing in the universe so when you think God, think unity to deny unity usually, usually will take you into the land of polytheism Where you end up believing in three gods, not one. That's bad. We don't want to end up there. So unity. Equality. We believe that the three persons in the Godhead are equal in value. That's what's sort of being stated here. They are all very God of very God. There's no hierarchy that has God the Father on top and the other two, Son and Holy Spirit, beneath Him. No, they are equal. Now, they may have subordinate functions within the Godhead... But that's not inequality. The three persons have equal status in the Godhead. It's like a marriage. There are differing functions given to the husband and wife, but there is always equality of person. That's what we have with the Trinity. All three persons equally God. So they're one, they're equal, but they're not the same. This is diversity. The Godhead consists of distinct persons. Meaning there is diversity within the Trinity that must be maintained. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct and diverse. People will often make the mistake of thinking that in the Old Testament, God was in Father mode. And when He came to earth to die on the cross, He came in the mode of the Son. And then when when, when worship gives you the warm fuzzies, then He's the Spirit. No. All of that, that's modalism. Modalism was, was condemned in the 4th century. We want no part of that. One God, three persons, unified, equal, and diverse. That's what's being entered into here. The world of the Trinity. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Next idea. Jesus is the creator of all things. John tells us that by him we were all, were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the being who made the worlds and all that they contain. Psalm 148. He commanded and they were created. The eternal nature of the word shows up here again. God didn't make the sun. He didn't generate the sun. The sun has always been. Not anything made was made without him. That includes himself, right? God didn't create the sun because nothing was made that the sun didn't make. Colossians 1 tells us he is before all things and in him all things are held together he's creator which brings us to the next idea Jesus is the source of all life John writes in him was life not through him was life but in him was life meaning from all eternity and throughout the ages life resided in the word this is the truth of what we call self-existence Just another clear statement concerning the divine nature of the word. Because God alone is self-existent. God alone is self-existent. Everything else comes from him. Everything else is becoming, is changing. Everything else owes itself to him. He alone is self-existent. He's unchanging. He is permanent. Nothing else is in that category. I remember first thinking through this idea that there, was, that there was never a point Where God did not exist I was reading an R.C. Sproul book And he had a whole chapter dedicated to the idea Of God is God is and I read that chapter four, five, six 5, 6 times Just Getting my mind around it It kept me up at night God is The isness of God I am who I am Was how God described himself in Exodus 3 And that actually became his name, Yahweh, I am. He is from everlasting to everlasting, or as Paul preached it, in him we live and move and exist. In him we exist. He is the source. He is self-existence. We are all dependent creatures. And this isn't just speaking about our physical existence. This is our spiritual existence as well. He is the source of that too. In giving us life, men, human beings, made in his image, are given spiritual faculties and reasonable faculties, but these things that the rest of creation do not have. My dog doesn't ponder meaning and eternity. She doesn't. She ponders treats and going outside and trying to sneak into bed with the kids. That's what she ponders. She doesn't ponder meaning and eternity. Men do. This is what is meant by that life was the light of men that we have there in verse 4. Life was the light of men. We are unique beings in God's creation. Let's keep moving. The last idea. Jesus is the shining light in darkness. And here we have the first mention of spiritual opposition in the book of John. The mention of darkness. The word is this divine and supernatural light that has entered into this world and it has come into a world that has fallen into sin and darkness and despair and this world is filled with people who have exchanged the truth about god for a lie people who would rather worship creation instead of creator people given over to folly and sin that's jared's sermon last week if you were here and what has been the outcome of that well the end of verse five says the darkness has not overcome the light that word translated overcome in the esv it's the word katalambano and it can actually mean grasp or apprehend meaning when the light came and shined into the darkness of human sin and corrupt religion and the wicked hearts of mankind even though mankind as spiritual beings had the wiring to believe mankind would not believe because he did not grasp or apprehend the light Jesus shines his light, but few apprehend it. few understand, few grasp. John is basically explaining the experience of the Jews. Sure, a remnant of them had believed, but in large part, they did not grasp. They did not apprehend the light, and neither do we apart from divine grace. So those are the five ideas from these five verses. The word Jesus Christ is eternal. He is the one with with God the Father. He is very God of very God. He is creator of all things. All life is in Him, and He is the light shining in the darkness. Now, what are the implications of those huge, overwhelming ideas? Two implications. First, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. As you read the first five verses of John's Gospel, you notice what kind of being the redeemer of mankind must be in order order to provide redemption for sinners. He is no less than the eternal God, the creator and the preserver of all things. That is what is required to take away the sin of the world, meaning sin must be a much, much, much more horrendous thing in the sight of God than most men suppose that it is. The old bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, said, The right measure of sin's sinfulness is the dignity of him who came into the world to save sinners. If Christ is so great, then sin must indeed be sinful. Second implication, the foundation for hope that's found here. When you read these first five verses of John's Gospel, Remember that the Savior in whom the believer is being told to trust in is nothing less than the eternal God. The one able to save to the uttermost all that come to the Father by Him. He that was with God. He was God. He is also Emmanuel. He is God with us. Let us thank God that our help is laid on one who is mighty. That is hope. In ourselves, we are great sinners. But in, in Jesus Christ, we have a great Savior. The hope of Christmas rests in that truth. Celebrating Christmas is worshiping Jesus. And not necessarily the babe in a manger with the soft lighting and oh Holy Night playing in the background. It's worshiping the King of everything. The King of everything. Who emptied himself of divine glory to come and to save sinners, to shine light into wicked hearts so, the, that's, so that those hearts could, could apprehend, could, to, to grasp, to understand. And if you've never done that today, if you've never come to a place where you've really trusted in Christ, where you've really seen the light of Christ, where you've really seen the glory of God in Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us to live here and to live a perfect life and to die a heinous death and to do so in your place if that's just coming together for you today you can transfer your trust in whatever it is you've been putting your trust in, yourself or your stuff or a relationship or a status, you you can transfer all of you away from that and on to Christ because right here we know he's big enough He's big enough to take all of it. He's big enough to make you right. He's big enough to forgive you of your sins. And he's big enough to be our object of worship, not for 25 days in Christmas, but for all of eternity. All of eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for these inspired words to John. These words so rich and full of meaning, Lord, that we could read and reread and reread all morning, all day and mine truth and treasure and riches God be with us as we, uh, as we celebrate this Christmas season as we look to you not to things not even to family but we look to you for our joy for our meaning but God most of all We look to you because in you is our great salvation. We thank you for your word. In his name we pray. Amen.
1: We're going to observe communion now. and uh, We see in scripture that God is a, a God of remembrance. Over and over and over again he calls us to remember the things that he's done. And so this meal, this time together, is, is, is one, it's a time to remember. Uh, as the people left Egypt, um, there, they uh, before they left, the Passover, as Christ, uh, or as the angel of death was passing over, God told them to, to take an bl- unblemished lamb and to put the blood, the c- to cover their doorposts. And so we remember and we see this, what Christ instituted with his own blood. The blood of bulls and goats was never meant to save anybody, it was only through Jesus Christ, and so he points to himself, the Passover meal, communion, it all points to Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed to give us a covering, to atone for our sins, and so uh, as we come to the table, we want to invite all of you who um, are believers in Jesus Christ to partake of this supper with us. I want to invite the deacons, those that are going to be serving, those are leading um, to come up forward, uh, forward at this time. This is something that in the life of the church we continue to do over and over again. It's an opportunity to express the unity of the church, the fellowship of God's people, to remember Christ's sinless life and atoning death on our behalf. It's intended as a proclamation of Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection and his return. And it's an also it's a built-in opportunity for us to examine ourselves and to see where we are with God. And so let's take this meal together. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's give thanks for the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this this gift. Just as we heard in your your word a minute ago that you came to the world for this purpose, to be slain, to save sinners. And your body was broken and it was beaten for, for us. The punishment that we deserved, you took upon yourself. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken on our behalf. said this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me let's eat the bread in the same way after supper he took the cup let's pray again lord we are so grateful for your blood that atones for all of our sin. The work that you did on the cross absorbed the wrath of God for those that are in you. Your blood is our covering and we thank you so much, Lord, that you willingly bled and died for us. We remember that in your sacrifice today. sing together when I saw the cleansing fountain said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. And he said, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
0: to our deacons thank you jared just a couple of things make sure you grab a bulletin today there's a lot of information in there about some things coming up uh, this month Uh, so uh, take a look at that also our newsletter for december is available so uh, that'll keep you posted on on everything going on this month and even beyond a little bit also in their bulletin uh, there's a prayer request for the Niger team, the group of men that are heading out this week, this Wednesday uh, to Niger, Africa, to drill wa- drill water wells for a couple of weeks. Man, just commit to praying for those guys. Um, you know, Jim and, and Kenyon and Kent are here uh, with us in this service this morning. Talk to them before they leave. Encourage them as they go. Uh, but commit to praying for them. Um, that's a long trip, and it's, a, it, it's certainly one that will uh, push them to their limits. So uh, Brent and, and, and Kendra are in Colorado this week, and we may not see them, gosh, until January, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll see Scotty in the second service, but uh, these other three, um, just, just commit to, to praying for them. Uh, that's all we have this morning. I just encourage you to go in, in the life and in the light of Christ. You're dismissed. <laughs>